Hey guys, want to watch some TV and uh, chill before we get this rolling? Yeah, cool, man. Just uh, toss me the remote. Let's see what's on. All right, I'm here with uh, Jathan Sadowski. Are you ready to submit yourself to processing into the Church of Ludism? Uh, yeah, I, I guess. All right, could you answer the next series of questions without blinking your eyes for me? Yes. Without fear and hesitation, answer as quickly as you can? Sure. Okay. Uh, starting now, you are not to blink. If you blink, we go back to the beginning. All right, that's an infringement. All right, you blinked. So starting now, you are not to blink. If you blink, we go back to the start. Do you often think about how bad at coding you are? No. Do you believe Elon Musk will save you from your own ridiculousness? No. Have you ever wanted to be a computer? Yes. Have you ever wanted to fuck a computer? Yes. Who? The motherboard from Cyberchips. I am motherboard. Have you ever doxed anyone? No. Maybe? Not me. Have you ever killed anyone? No. How many times did you want to fuck Motherboard from Ch Cyber Chase? Every day. When was the last time you watched Cyber Chase? Uh, I don't know. Do you still want to fuck computers? No. Do you want to be a computer? No. Are you sure? No. Where's Alexa? I, I don't know. Where's Siri? I don't know. Infringement. That's an infringement. Fuck! a chip inside of this, your brain. And Elon Musk is gonna fix that one. Yo, TMK raps with machine gun marks. Fuck capitalism. <clears throat> What's up, bourgeois scum? I heard you were talking shit. My name is Mars, but you call me the machine. Public revolution, I got the means. You say communism is Byzantine, but I look at the existing order. I'll see. Step on up, it's time to get fed. Salute, call me gentle intellect. My dictatorship of the mic is full of fact. Try to touch my manifesto, you ain't got the guts. You can't even hold my fragment, dear class. Check both a program and grunt at these nuts. Uh, on second thought, guys, let's just start the recording. Friends and enemies, it's episode 12 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan here with Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Uh, today we're joined by Daniel Carr, but before we get to that, I uh, just want to, you know, just, just a little plug that we finally fired up the old Patreon. Um, we're on there, patreon.com slash this machine kills. So because of that, I think our the way that we're going to be doing episodes is going to start shifting a little bit. 
we were discussing and we were we we basically figured out that we're essentially putting out like an audio essay every week. Um, I mean, with like yeah. you know two hour episodes with the amount of research and recording and production that we're doing, we're 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 creating an essay every week. And so we also know that that can be hard to listen to um, two hour chunks all, all at once. Uh, and so what we've what we're going to experiment with doing. Um, is every week we're gonna release the, the first part of this kind of essay, uh, you know, focusing on a particular topic, a deep dive um, as, of, as the free episode. So you'll still get that hour plus, um, you know, amount of content really introing you and talking about uh, some kind of important issue or a topic. And then the Patreon episode, the premium episode every week is going to be the second part of that kind of audio essay where, we're, you know, that's where we'll start getting into um, even deeper analysis, um, our own kind of, you know, expanding on our own takes on the subject. Um, so, you know, you'll get part one for free and part two, uh, just $5 a month on, on Patreon. So if you want, you know, that hard hitting techno political content, two plus hours a week, uh, you know, just subscribe patreon.com this machine slash this machine kills and uh yeah anything to add on to that ed yeah just uh you know give us your money um <laughs> help us get this startup going help fund our spac uh you know we're we're gonna do a lot we're gonna disrupt a lot of shit in the vc space but we need your uh donations to start doing our series a fundraising I mean, Ed just got blocked by Paul Graham right before we started <laughs> recording. So, you know, we're on it, man. We're on it. <laughs> you know, exactly. and if you are, if you are a Paul Graham or you are at Jason, or, you know, <laughs> any of these little VC chumps listening in, trying to get some dirt on us, we got a venture capital tier on Patreon. It's $50 a month. Join up, launder your soul a little bit, give us that hard earned VC money, you know. Don't brag to all your boys in the clubhouse about us. <laughs> so that that's all. That's our only plug. Uh, you know, patreon.com slash this machine kills. We're on the bandwagon. Um, join up, get that premium content, that premium analysis every single week. So let's roll into the main uh the main topic, the main episode for this week. Uh, we're joined by Danielle Carr, who is in the anthropology department at Columbia. She's writing and working on the political history of brain implant technologies uh, and, and recently wrote just an absolutely killer essay in The Baffler, um, debunking the science behind Neuralink. Uh, you know, Elon Musk is dumbass brain implant slash supposed mind control technology. So we knew we had to get Danielle on to dunk on Elon, debunk this shitty science, and just talk in general about the, the shitty political economy of innovation today. Welcome to TMK, Danielle. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here before the uh, IPO is launched, and I've been a huge fan since the beginning, so I'm really happy to be here. I, th I think you know a lot of people are maybe familiar with Neuralink. Um, probably have actually forgotten about Neuralink because everything happened so much. And that was, you know, what that was like almost three weeks ago that Elon did his little science theater. Yeah, in quarantine weeks too. So That's three yeah, weeks ago. You know, it's like dog oh. years. It, it is. It's dog years. So that was that was like what five years ago in quarantine <laughs> weeks. 
Uh, Elon Musk did his little mystery science theater. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, Jeremy's putting in the chat that poor pig. You know, just 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 animal torture. But maybe you can, maybe we can back it up a little bit. And and could you give us a reminder about what Neuralink is supposed to be, and also maybe a little bit about um, how you came to write this essay and look at things like brain implant technology. Yeah, definitely. So I guess I'll um, I'll start with what is Neuralink and kind of what was the um, precipitating event for this essay, uh, which was a launch that they held that was uh, that was streamed on YouTube. So so Neuralink is um, Elon Musk's like gambit to join um, the I guess, I guess you could call it like brain stimulation research community in the way that it's being marketized in a variety of different ways. And I think what's really interesting about the brain stimulation, brain implant um, research space is that there's so much overlap between pure science and applied science. So almost all of the PIs um, that are working in this space also own intellectual property or uh, have uh, subsidiary companies. And so it's kind of difficult to, to differentiate between um, the, the, the two valences of like pure and applied research here, pure and marketized research here. Um, so, so I guess I'll start by saying what, what does Elon Musk want you to think about Neuralink? And the story yes. goes like this. Well, you're going to have, uh, I guess you could call it a Fitbit in your skull oh and it's going, you know, you're going to like put it in and yank it out every couple of years. Uh, and the same way that you upgrade an iPhone every few years. Um, uh, that's, be- I feel like a lot of people overlooked that aspect that it's meant to, it has like an iPhone obsolescence, uh, obsolescence planned into it, where it's like every few years you get your new, your brain implant like yanked out and reinserted with like the latest grade. That what a fucking unhinged way to talk about a brain implant technology. Yeah, no, it's like completely. I mean, like this is as we'll get into. It's like completely in outer space and like implausible. But anyway, so the idea is like. You're gonna have, uh, you're not, it's not gonna be under general anesthetic, by the way, because that would like take it to uh, an implausible price point. It's gonna be like a LASIK style surgery, but it's gonna be done by a robot in like some sort of like strip mall overseen by like some like guy getting paid like $12 an hour, you know? And uh, and it's gonna solve blindness and it's gonna solve depression and it's gonna solve like paraplegia and it's gonna solve anything to do with the brain, which if you kind of think about it is anything at all. Um, right. <laughs> and that's like, the, that's like the just so story that's being told. And, and of course, Musk's like long-term vision is that this is going to be um, used in the fight to keep humanity from being overtaken by superhuman AI. So this is gonna like also allow you to be like jacked into the system and uh, and, and augment your intelligence. And this is- Yeah, that's, that's, another, that's another big part of it as well is that part of, part of his ploy here, I mean, you know, big ups to Musk for keeping his ideology coherent. Uh, part of his ploy here is that this is about creating, you know, superhumans, giving us superpowers so that we can, I don't know, fight against the Terminator pre- or prevent the Terminator Skynet from ever arising. You it's know, un- it's, it's going to be like the boys, but all of us eventually become Stormfront. Uh, you know, you give it enough 
given enough yes. time, we'll all become the Nazi superhero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, except for me, I will get my Neuralink and become the Antifa super soldier. Okay. <laughs> I, I the resistance, play. right? You'll hack people's Neuralinks. That's right. <laughs> to anti-fascist. So I, so I guess to answer your question very briefly about how I became interested in this, uh, which yeah. is kind of plays into like the genealogy of like the federal funding space that is allowing companies like Neuralink to emerge is uh, when I started graduate school, I guess like six years ago, um, it was right around the time that the Obama Brain Initiative had been launched, which was mm. um, a bolus of federal funding uh, that was about $100 million at that point, half of which was being put up by DARPA, the other half of which was kind of split between the NIH and the NSF. That was modeled on the Human Genome Project, where, you know, you map the gene, uh, it acts as a kind of like uh, scientific Keynesianism for the economy as it's translated into all of these like private, um, private companies. And uh, so the idea was you're gonna, we're gonna map the brain and um, these different forms of brain stimulation technologies, most notably something called deep brain stimulation, um, we're gonna be like the flagship technologies of this, um, of this initiative. So that's, I started doing um, field work with clinical trials um, that are using brain implants for different sorts of affective disorder. And I've been doing that, working with this community for about, uh, yeah, six years. Yeah. You know, it's been interesting, you know, in another life, I thought I was going to do neuroscience and I wanted to be a neurosurgeon uh, because a uh, shout out to our boy, uh, Ben Carson, um, <laughs> who uh, was in, Ed, was I, like I have a to ask you, was, was Ben Carson your role model? Yeah, well, he was when I was a kid because I was raised in a, in a school. I had raised in a Seventh-day Adventist household, which is the church he belongs to. And the school I went to was built by the church that he went to. And whenever I saw him was like starstruck, like obsessed with the life story and all that. And so I was like, yeah, I'm gonna be a neurosurgeon. I remember even uh, when, the, uh, when the Obama brain project came out, this was around the time where I still wanted to actually be a computer one day and thought the singularity <laughs> would, um, would uh, happen. And uh, one of my CogSci professors uh, low-key insulted me <laughs> and, and gave me a very in, uh, intense rant uh, about why it was bullshit. Shocking. I was like, oh, actually, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, actually, I don't even, I don't even care about this. That actually, that's not real, Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Man, instead. that's just like, there, there's a multiverse happening where you are the Ben Carson I'm at Neuralink. Right? <laughs> yeah, you're at Neuralink. You're on stage <laughs> with Elon Musk. I'm like, I'm like trying to catch the pig that went into the background. <laughs> it was such a catastrophe. Like, it was like so unprofessional. I was like, are you, is this seriously like you're like, you guys are going to take over the world. You can't even get right. the pig to come out. It was so, it was like, I felt, I, I felt a small pang of, uh, sympathy for him because he's like just standing there red face just flushed and he's like yeah i'm gonna uh change the future and the pig is escaping he's like yeah well he'll come to us <laughs> <You know? laughs> they'll, they'll get him. They, they're working on him so but, i, I yeah. totally forgot about yeah. this this 
2013 Brain Initiative, just yeah. real quick. And, and like all of these big government funding uh, initiatives, Brain is an acronym. So it's it's Brain Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies. You can't use Brain in as the as the B in the acronym. You can if you use your brain. <laughs> That's thinking. <laughs> <Disruption>. <laughs> That's some big brain shit. It's actually, it's actually known as the Galaxy Brain Project. Uh, Jeremy said, you know, there's an alternate uh, universe where uh, maybe Jatha, you could be the com uh, the uh, chemist <laughs> for I the Cybertruck. My my own origin story, and I think we'll. So sorry to plug it again, but we will get into this on um on on this week's Patreon episode, which will be TMK Origins, where we'll talk more about kind of like what brought us to thinking about all of this. But a little teaser is that I initially started. Uh, university as a polymer chemistry major so I really want and I was working in a like a materials science lab as a research assistant like I really wanted to be a materials scientist um, and then fast forward like eight years later of, of, of undergrad and PhD and all that and and I came out of it um, starting a material scientist and and how's it going I am now a dialectical materialist <laughs> so you know that, that's that that's my that's my how it started how it's going meme right do there. these do these um these deep brain stimulation implants that seem to be the inspiration for Neuralink have relation to you know the I don't remember the specific name for them but the sort of helmets where they would try to create like a magnetic field around um, your head. To... Are you thinking about Cerebro, dude? That's X Men. <laughs> no, no, this is a this is an actual thing where they would kind of put a helmet onto you uh, and induce like a magnetic field uh, to a specific PMS, part of your brain. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yeah. So I mean, so just to backtrack a little bit, the reason that I became interested in these brain stimulation technologies is I thought, you know, that there was a kind of it's always very obvious ideological bait and switch happening, right? So like I was part of the generation that graduated from college like during the 08 crash and you know mm. in some ways went to grad school because it was like fuck you know <laughs> what else am I going to do and um yeah and I and I think that the what interested me was the way that the emergence of this hard neurobiological uh paradigm uh that was that was coming out of psychiatry psychology this kind of turn from for instance the dsm as the diagnostic nosology to uh new forms of, of diagnosis that were very hard biological reductionist this idea that that everything that occurs can be boiled down to a brain state is kind of the limit case of neoliberal medicalization right where everything that there is no structural problem. In fact, there is only the individual's bio, uh, biology. And so I was really interested in the way that um, claims about what depression is um, were being constituted by these neurobiological reductionist narratives. And so like when you, what you're talking about is like is, is called TMS and it's totally part of the same kind of new, it's, they're called electroceuticals um, that make a gambit to say that depression is not just a chemical uh, imbalance and certainly not something that's mediated by politics or infrastructure or history, um, but it's something that we can figure out where it is in the brain and we can patent that location and we can zap it and hey presto, you're fixed. Yeah, I mean, that's a great segue into your essay, um, which I think 
I, one of the reasons why I really liked your essay is that um, rather than falling for this trap that I think a lot of um, critics, but also, you know, even critics, but, but particularly a lot of the kind of credulent uh, boosters or just idiots, you know, it's like when, when the Neuralink uh, theater happened, you know, there are so many people, um, I think like Nate Silver and like Ezra Klein, like these big time like commenters were like, you know, quote tweeting Elon Musk's, you know, um, tweet about the demonstration and they're like, whoa, this is, this is crazy. This is going to be wild. Or, you know, like, oh, this is exciting. You know, they're just totally taking it at face value that like all of his claims about what Neuralink can do about, yeah, the, the, this kind of basis, this very brain-centric, um, biologically kind of essentialist view of how, you know, there, you know, it's like there, there's a spot in your brain and that's the depression spot, but there's also a correlative spot that's like, that's the joy spot. So it's like, if we just stimulate the joy part of the brain, then it will supersede the depression part or, you know, whatever. And they're all just taking this at face value. But even a lot of critics were really bemoaning the kind of like, this is, you know, mind control, um, you know, or this is the death of the mind as, you know, and your essay, rather than kind of taking any of that um, seriously and kind of going on, all right, if, if these claims are real, then here's why it's bad or here's what it, the implications of that are. I really like that you did the hard work of kind of um, debunking this myth, but also in a very historically situated way where it's like, uh, you know, everything that Elon Musk says Neuralink can do, not only is it not new now, like, you know, this is all based on like pretty established or old, uh, you know, neurotech, you know, neuroscience uh, and, and, and current innovation, but also that a lot of these same exact ideas can be traced back like 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that if you're paying attention it, from a sort of historical frame, and when you look at the, the the development of like technology and especially like discourse and moral panics around technology, it's we're very much in a first as tragedy that is farce kind of situation mm. uh, now, right? And with obviously with Musk being the farce. Um, so yeah, I think that if you look at the way that claims about um, the horizons of of uh, neural technology were parlayed in, in, the, in the 50s and the 60s, um, and then the sort of anti-psychiatry backlash to them, what we're seeing now is basically uh, a replay of all of those, um, all of those concerns, all of the sort of ethical qualms, um, and, and, and they're falling into exactly the same trap, which is um, to take the, the sort of hype science at, at face value and like if you if you so so the the and we can get into this later in the episode but I mean very what one of the one of the episodes that I uh, outline in the essay is the case of Jose Delgado who was a Spanish neurophysiologist who was mm. um, long had a faculty position at Yale who was kind of like one of the avant-garde of like these scientists who has their own press shop and is like very clearly speaking to the public and courting um, a sort of politicized imagination of his ideas. Um, and so he, you know, did kind of the first version of the, like, the, the pig business, except for his, his work. He implanted a bull with one of his neural um, implants, had the bull charge at him, and then with the switch of a button was able to stop the bull from charging, right? And so, the, you know, the American and the European press like goes crazy 
and it's like oh my god like mind control is here and like you know this is like the limit case of what like the anti-psychiatry movement is going to freak out about and that was based on um Jose Delgado actually it, he had implanted the, the, the his device into the caudate nucleus which means it what he wasn't influencing volition he was just making it so that the bull literally couldn't walk forward right but on the basis of these claims there was all you know all these ideas that suddenly like mind control is going to be is has like arrived and I think that we the, the sort of critique of technology that we need right now is not something that accepts um, the hype at face value and says, but it's bad. It's the critique that we need is, is to say, well, in fact, it is hype and like, and, and how is this hype working within the sort of like financialized political economy of biotech and, and how do we, how do we problematize that? Right. And, and in fact, um, the, you know, uh, Jose Delgado's, what you, you, you talk about is his 1969 book, Physical Control of the Mind Toward a Psycho-Civilized Society, which, I mean, that just, that, that hype alert right there. I need to read that book. That sounds fucking dope <laughs> as hell. It's amazing. I cannot recommend it enough. <laughs> I, I, I love that Delgado, Delgado had the, 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 you know, the confidence to use a bull um, and Elon Musk used pigs, and that just, you know yeah, that's right yeah. there, right? Tragedy and farce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's also really interesting. The you pointed out like the political inversion of them, and thinking about where like what why uh, in your essay you talk about how you know on the one hand Delgado what a sort of you know improvement of human spirit or human behavior in in line with achieving a social democracy or a fuller social democracy as musk is doing it to imagine you would be like a better capitalist worker or entrepreneur or consumer of capitalist goods and services yeah and that you wouldn't have none of this shit you know impeding you no depression no mood disorders you just work and you play and you consume yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually. There's this wonderful book called Technocrats of the Imagination about um, the nexus of art and technology um, that sort of comes out of this weird fusion in the 60s of like the Bauhaus and the military industrial complex. And how one of the points that, that the authors make in this book is that we're in this moment where we see the return of all of these like uh, horizons of imagination of technological thinking from the 60s. But now the this sort of political valence has precisely been inverted. Um, so like, just to speak a little bit about, about who Delgado is and uh, was and, and what, what his like politics were. So Delgado was interned in Franco's uh, concentration camps, which was hugely formative for his politics. And by the time he gets to Yale um, to work in John Fulton's lab, John Fulton is uh, the, like the premier neurophysiologist uh, of, of um, the mid-century scene in the United States. Uh, that for instance, like the, the lobotomy basically comes out of Fulton's lab, which by the way, was mainstream science at the time. Mm. And um, so what's happening in the, in the 60s, right? There, there's all these concerns about the, uh, the bomb, right? As, as, as manifesting this kind of technological determinism. And 
neuroscience becomes one of the last great stands of progressive science as opposed to militarized nationalistic science. And why this is, is because actually the pipeline for, neuros for neurophysiology and application is so long that at this point in the 60s, the state doesn't really want to fund it. It falls to UNESCO, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, um, to, to put money towards these things, right? And so in some ways, like neurophysiology is this weird like exception to the otherwise uh, prevalent trends towards um, militarization. And so Delgado actually thinks about neurophysiology and human engineering through uh, neural engineering as being like uh, a critique of liberal capitalism. He says this, the fact that we can pull the levers inside the brain goes to show that things like individuality, property, agency, all these things are the bedrock of Cold War individualism and um, liberal capitalism are in fact illusory. And so he's very much operating from this kind of imaginary of uh, progressive mid-century social engineering for a common public good. And so when you compare that with the, the imaginary that, that Musk is, is, is proving here, I mean, you can, so it's like, it's like, yeah, it's like weird negative space filling each other in, right? Yeah, there's this kind of bizarro version happening where it's like the, the complete inverse politics are being embedded into um, similar kinds of visions of, of this technology and what it can do and how it can be kind of mainstreamed and used. Right. Even the formative years. I mean, didn't Elon Musk grow up in apartheid South Africa? And his yeah. family, his, his family's a, wealth is from an emerald mine. I mean, from like, an emerald mine, and he like showed up in New York City with a pocket full of emeralds, and you know, <laughs> he had he had emeralds in one pocket and hopes and dreams in the other pocket. Yeah, you know, and I think also of how a lot of Elon Musk's projects also, on the one hand, are like sold as massive engineering products projects, either of people or of spaces uh, that will uplift everyone. But in reality, they're what they're like redirecting public money to private ends to, to, to fix the ailing of private enterprise where profits are dropping and not to actually improve like the experience of the individuals. Like as, as it says, it's, it's actually like an ancillary benefit that if, you know, we go to Mars and people might enjoy being on Mars. Or if we get a hyperloop, people might get to their commute faster. The real thing is like, this is a new enterprise for capital, like to just sink its money into and get maybe a return because the government's yeah. backing it. Well, I was just going to say that I think that like the one of the key things that we can't miss about the way that this works on the level of, let's say, ideology is that there is a moment of progressive science of, of utopic aspiration in the 50s and the 60s, right? Where there is this idea of engineering a future that is radically different than what we've known in the past. And this current stuff promises, says, look, well, it's not exactly like you thought it was gonna be, and it's not gonna be for everyone, but we're gonna give you that thing that you imagined in the past. You're gonna get the jetpacks. You're gonna go to Mars. It's just like, unfortunately, like you're not gonna be super insured for that. Or like, it's not <laughs> gonna be like everyone who gets to you do it. You have to take and, out a mortgage, right? You have yeah, to take exactly. out like a $500,000 loan to live on Mars with no fucking Yeah, I mean, if you, think about, like, if you think about like the vicissitudes of, for instance, like, um, like uh, LSD research, right? It goes from being this sort of countercultural critique of the system to now you like microdose so that you can like 
code on a, a your like we were cubicle uh, better, are lost. Right? so like <laughs> so it's like so like there's there's been this like selling out that nevertheless still attaches to the utopic vision and that draws its rhetorical force from this utopic utopic vision that we've been betrayed. Yeah, I mean that that's this you know, uh, Musk's buddy, Peter Till, uh, you know, the, the, it's it's completely wild that, you know, two of our most kind of, uh, you know, vocally utopian or radical thinkers when it comes to technology and also critics of the kind of normal Silicon Valley way of, you know, marginal um, conveniences and improvements and stuff, you know, they, they, they want to take on these big, world historic engineering programs, right? Like Peter Till famously bemoaning that, uh, you know, we we were promised flying cars and all we got was 140 characters, right? This kind of bullshit, but it's like yep. we've, uh, we've sacrificed or we've, or rather we've given over the territory of this kind of radical engineering, utopian thinking to these radically reactionary and awful uh, human beings, right? Well, I mean, human beings allegedly, but uh, you know, <laughs> these, the, this is a territory that, and, and it also goes to um, an essay that you use uh, in your essay and that you reminded me of when we were chatting before the recording is um, David Graeber's excellent piece from The Baffler as well called Of Flying Cars and the Declining Rate of Profit, where he really lays out this kind of historical uh, progression or a degression of um, technology from you know, kind of uh, post-war up until the previous uh, or up until the contemporary time and how, uh, you know, this this kind of radical thinking has been curtailed um, in a lot of ways and our collective imagination around what's possible has been constrained. Um, and, and, I, and he gives a, a really great kind of analysis of this as uh, a, a product of this kind of declining rate of profit, right? So it's it's not that you know he he essentially lays out. I there's there's either two reasons why our expectations and the realities of technology have not been you know why we're not met, right? Like if you were to take a kind of a you know an, a radical thinker or science fiction author like. Jules Verne, you know, from over a hundred, you know, 150 years ago and put them into today, it's highly likely that they would not look around and be like, wow, like all of my dreams came true, or this is such a, a crazy uh, society. I'm unable to understand it. They would look at it and be like, this is, this is where you guys have gotten, this is all that you have, like you don't have any of the things that I was imagining would be possible in, you know, the early 1900s, let alone the mid 1900s, let alone the 20, you know, the 2000s, like, uh, and he talks about how there's either two reasons for that, either our expectations um, of the things that you know, people in the 50s and 60s, you know, some of the most brilliant intellectuals and scientific minds of that time were saying this is what would be possible by the 80s or the 90s, let alone the turn of the millennium, um, and that have not come to pass. Either their expectations were completely off base, and we have to figure out why everyone thought something that was wrong, uh, or we have to figure out that their expectations were not off base, but something else happened, something in the political economy 
um, caused innovation to kind of go off track. Uh, and and that that was also that was one reason why I wanted to talk about Neuralink as well because it's and I think you do a really great job of this in the essay is that it's it's not just about Neuralink it's not you know in this kind of like shitty the shitty science behind this like shitty innovation it's not and it's not only just about Elon Musk right the the even shittier innovator um, who who's kind of trying to sell and pitch this like a carny um, to everyone but rather it's a uh, it's a product of how the political economy of innovation exists now right and that it leads us to uh, essentially this kind of theater, which is all, I mean, we need to understand the Neuralink demonstration as an investment forum, right? It was about ginning Completely. up investment um, for a company that uh, Elon Musk has like, you know, put a hundred million dollars of his own money into. Um, and that's not because he's some altruistic innovator who's trying to, you know, create big engineering projects that further humanity, despite his own claims to the contrary. It's an investment for him, right? He expects to get returns on that investment. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think that one of the things that Graeber points out is that, you know, in, in like when Arendt writes um, Human Condition in uh, the 60s, she and many other very serious, very smart people are like, what are we going to do about the imminent end of work and the fact that everything is going to be automated and like this is going to be a massive social transformation. And in fact, what happens, right, and as Graeber sort of documents is that post-industrial society just means that these different forms of work become invisibilized in, um, in the global South, right? Um, and I mean, Graeber's other work kind of examines the emergence of what he calls bullshit jobs to take over. Uh, so people are still working. You're just like checking Twitter all day at your like crummy, like, you know, desktop, whatever, where you're like kind of working and kind of not, but still like there's totally, the, the regime of wage and time discipline is, is very much um, still present in some ways, more robustly uh, exerting control over you than, than you were in the 60s when at least you might have been more likely to be unionized, right? You're exactly right that uh, what we end up seeing is rather than these dreams of like, you know, fully automated, these kind of dark factories, right? Where it's like, it's so automated and so roboticized that you don't even have to turn the lights on. Um, because there's no humans there doing the, doing that work. The humans are where value comes from, right? Like human labor is where value comes from, which leads to this kind of declining rate of profit because you can only extract so much and you have to end up, you have to find new humans and new places who you can extract um, labor and value from and exploit better. And so what you end up with is these kind of offshoring of factories and, and, and industrial manufacturing to um, the global south, where these factories are also tend to be much lower tech, right? Like they, like they, they're not as if it's like it's cheaper to build the high tech factory um, somewhere else, but you, it's cheaper rather to build a very low tech factory and staff it with very low waged human labor. And this is the kind of, uh, these are the incentives or rather these are the imperatives to try to constantly outpace this declining rate of profit um, by innovating new ways to do so. So this is where innovation happens, uh, not in giving us, you know, 
you know, a wild new society or wild new ways of living um, or innovations that truly change the, the way that, uh, you know, the, the horizons of possibility for people, rather innovation is dedicated towards trying to outrun a decline, a, 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 you know, an economic law um, that you, that the capitalists will never in the long run outrun, um, but, but they're, but they're trying to, they're trying desperately to, and they're, they're throwing all of, you know, they're throwing a lot of people behind them. You know, it's like the declining rate of profit is this bear that's chasing the capitalists right. and we're all running with them and they're tripping, you know, they're tripping us so that the bear eats us um, so that they can keep running a little bit further. And then they have to find new people to like feed into the maws of the bear. Um, and eventually the people will run out and we're kind of coming up against that now. Yeah, you yeah, know, totally. I think that's what, like you talked earlier about the financialized political economy, like this, the, the development where there's been, it feels essentially like a vast conspiracy of the tech that we have is largely superfluous or superficial, but it's driven by uh, specific sectors of capital that want returns, can't get it in traditional sectors and are using either monetary policy or you know bubbles and speculative bubbles or financial devices they create to pull money out of tech right and so tech ends up being the most dynamic sector right now because it has all these creative devices at work there right like the ability to get debt or uh, get you know no interest rates or negative interest rates allows them to borrow massive amounts that they wouldn't need to. They can be unprofitable. Yeah, and this all dictates the development of every single every single tech device that we have and tech innovation, but also the imaginations, right? And feeds into like as you've talked about in other essays. You know, there are also already other ideologies that feed into how we think about technology. You know, like in your essay with medicalized society. Um, in Jacobin, in Jacobin. talk about how this idea, this conceptualization of biological disease as like a person, uh, as a problem of your own, as a person, instead of like a consequence of you know, the multitude of factors in our society, gives a lot of cover to a lot of um, a lot of social designing or social policy that would we would otherwise like you know lash out against. I'm curious if like you could also guide people listening to that through that essay because I think it also has like very strong connections to the um the Musk essay definitely yeah totally so I think like one of the things that most routinely breaks my brain which is like mm -hmm. ah how are we making the same mistake again is the way <laughs> that the left has lost its critique of science right and so there's I think a lot of times this kind of discourse of um, if you at all problematize the idea that all mental illness or any despair or negative affect um, could it all be structural and perhaps is not entirely boiled down to, um, you know, some neurological condition that this somehow makes you like participating in ableism or denying the lived experience of people. And I think that this is like one of the biggest traps that the left has fallen into um, is that, you know, to this, so, so there's a, there's a, one of the wrong ways to make a critique of mental health is what happened with anti-psychiatry, right? Where they say, okay, um, mental illness is either real because it's biological 
or it's fake and political uh and so and and therefore like depression is or or in their case like schizophrenia is fake or like liberatory in some ways and this is like a false binary right if you think about if you think on a structural level let's take it let's take the example of something like cancer in some ways you couldn't imagine a more like legitimately biological illness and yet cancer is completely influenced by things like toxicity um infrastructures um access to access to uh, clean water and so on and so forth and so we don't have to really fall into this trap of saying well it's either biological or it's political in fact the biological is political all the way down right this is like what we mean by dialectical materialism and so um <laughs> I think that we really do ourselves a disservice when we when we buy into this idea that mental health as such is, is beyond critique. And one of the most pernicious, um, one of the most pernicious effects of mental health discourse, as it has been installed, by the way, by uh, by capitalists since the rise of the, uh, since the beginning of the 20th century, as I outlined in that uh, in the Jack essay, is the individualization. Uh, and, the, and the paradigm of the individual's body as as being the sort of like locus of, of a politic that must necessarily be individualized. Um, and so, yeah, when when Elon Musk is saying things like, well, we can solve depression or we can solve PTSD uh, by flipping a switch in the brain, he's drawing on an imaginary that, by the way, a lot of us on the left have accepted and need to rethink. Um, but I guess to sort of just get back into like the critique of Neuralink here is that, I mean, there's so many reasons why you can't flip a switch in the brain to cure depression. But like one of them is that the search for where depression is in the brain is going very badly. So for instance, like the, the, the massive trial of, of deep brain stimulation for depression, which was going to be uh, what the FDA was going to draw on. Um, to approve this device for uh, for insurers and so on, it failed, uh, and the the big medical device companies have kind of pulled out of uh, depression research and are waiting for a, a big breakthrough. That's in fact one of the reasons why a lot of people, kind of in the old economy of uh, massive medical device manufacturers, are like happy to see Elon Musk kind of take on this this role of like trying to bring it back and drum, drum up hype for it because most people in this research community have kind of accepted that, well, it's it's like a very tenuous proposition. Right, yeah. that, that, that company you talked about at the end, the Room Labs was also a really interesting one. I didn't know that it exists, right? The one where it's, um, you have this firm that says you have data researchers, researchers have data, they don't have the infrastructure and the firms may not have the data or, or they may have the infrastructure, but they're not willing to actually sink the money into it because of like this getting burned in the getting burned in the past in terms of like not getting the profit they want. So give us all your fucking data and we will give you the infrastructure, right? And this, I've, I've seen this also crop up in so many industries where uh, services, real where platforms come up as intermediaries for services, take advantage of the fact that cities, localities, municipalities, they don't have infrastructure for doing shit like ride hailing, uh, for organizing labor, uh, for small tasks that may fit outside of employment, right? So they're just going to rely on some other place to do the computation. And I think that it's interesting you have this company uh, 
step right in and probably will like do you think do you think that Neuralink may end up assuming some sort of form where it ends up just saying we have a massive amount of capital so we can get infrastructure uh, if these devices don't end up panning out in a way that investors or other companies are interested in? Or is it more like that Rune Labs and those companies will exist in their own ecosystem as long as people keep believing that this stuff is possible? I mean, so first of all, I think it's like so well observed uh, about the the similarities here between uh, regarding the privatization of kind of computational level infrastructure. I think that's right. Um, basically, one of the problems right now with um, trying to get neural data is that it's not really clear what it means. Um, because we know, well, depression or like PTSD or all these other different diagnoses, they're concepts made out of language. And the gambit is that there is some real neurological state underlying them in such a way that everyone has the same kind of underlying neurological state. Now, most researchers will tell you this is not true. And so what you're left uh, to do to try to make this data meaningful is to correlate it with other forms of data, most notably the kinds of data that your phone is collecting on you all the time. Plus the sort of data that you get from apps like what Rune is building where they send you like a push notification, like rate your mood on a scale of like one to five, uh, six times over the course of the day, right? Which is how of, I think of my mood all the time. You know, I'm, I'm constantly <laughs> constantly checking in with my play with myself and saying, am I a one or a five today? Uh, you know, maybe a three or four. Yeah, maybe a three. <laughs> four point two, four point four. 4. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, right. So, like, they, so in some ways, like, there's an entire just like, like, ideological obfuscation with the idea that these numbers are meaningful anyway, right? But in the decline of, let's say, hypothesis-driven science, which is endemic in the way, which is emblematic of the way that that science is working now in this sort of big data moment, um, the gambit is one that if you put enough numbers in and crunch enough correlations, you're going to get a p-value that will like allow you to publish a paper or sell something um, to your investors, right? And so that's what kind of science this is. It's not hypothesis-driven science. It's kind of after-the-fact number crunching. Yeah, so, and I, I yeah. was going to say, I really like in the essay how you do kind of talk about what what's what's the underlying finan like financials of something like Neuralink. Um, and I think you give a really compelling case that as you as you say, um, in the essay, quote, as a tech company, the medical device arm arm of the venture doesn't need to turn a profit or even be very widely used in order to yield data about neural activity that will legally belong to Neuralink. Real-time information about neural activity is currently one of the hardest forms of data to acquire. Everyone has a phone, but very few people have neural implants. And so I like how you, you plug it directly back into this kind of, you know, the, these overarching imperatives or ways of organizing, you know, the capitalist economy, the technology sector, um, where again, it's like, you know, the the hardware side of Neuralink, the device arm, the, the, the you know, supposedly kind of medical aspect of this venture, uh, that's not even the focus, right? Like that's the loss leader. The real, the real gain here um, is getting that, that direct brain data, which plays into um, where companies like Rune Lab, um, which I also had no idea existed, 
uh, you know, these kinds of like infrastructure as a service companies that are like, we have, you know, um, we have all of the, the, the heavy and, you know, because we have, you know, billions of, of venture capital, um, we're able to invest in the, in creating the, the infrastructure for like storing and analyzing, you know, these petabytes worth of brain data um, that researchers at, a, at universities, for example, or these smaller startups don't have that capital. So it becomes like AWS, but for the brain, right? So, I mean, that's the real Neuralink. It's not, fit, it's not Fitbit for the brain, it's AWS for the brain. What's AWS? Amazon Web Services. Okay. <laughs> Oh yeah! Oh, no, that, that's good. That's good. M maybe not everyone. So AWS is uh, is is the cloud infrastructure from Amazon, which is their main profit engine. I mean, that's where like all of their profit comes from, um, is by running uh, all of these these cloud storage and and computa cloud computational servers. That everything from like Netflix to the CIA um, to you know. The, my my website, you know, like at the smallest startup, like it all uses AWS um, because that that's that's the real gambit. There is that uh, Amazon and and so something like Neuralink as well um, becomes this kind of infrastructure as a service, but for um, rather than for the internet, it's for the brain. Yeah, I think that's totally right, um, and I think that it kind of remains to be seen how valuable. Uh, neural data is, and I think Jason, your work really speaks to this, right, is that one of the things about data being capital is that the relentless drive to accumulation often takes on a logic of its own and a speculative mm -hmm. logic. Um, and, you know, it's not clear um, how, whether or not this, I mean, it's it's going to very much shake out in, in the process whether or not um, this is an investment that pays off. But yeah, I think that that's, that's the name of the game here. And I mean, if you, having worked with these clinical trials for a very long time now, um, the patients who are involved in these trials who have these different forms of um, machines in their brain that are generating data that can then be coupled to behavioral metrics, uh, phone data, all this sort of thing, they're very, very valuable. Um, they, are, they are often kind of like hot, uh, I don't wanna say hot items, but, but people from a variety of different research teams want to work with them and run experiments on and with them because they have a very valuable form of data that is like simply not available uh, otherwise. And so the fact that Neuralink is kind of this gambit to establish a platform in the brain where you can get this sort of data is like, it seems like pretty straightforward to me what sort of, uh, what sort of like a game this is. And it, and it should be noted by the way that like given the current way that the, the device is set up. It's only the, the, the electrodes are only being sewn along the cortex that is along the outermost layer of the brain. That's why it's being applied for tetraplegia, paraplegia, different forms of um, paralysis, is that you can um, use the, the neural signals that are generated in the cortex to influence um, movement. Right now, there is not really a feasible path to get those electrodes deeper in the brain, which is where you would need it for things like uh, decision-making, subjective function, mood, affect, and so on. Um, and you're definitely not going to get them deeper in the brain using this like automated robot um, for like a variety of like technical and also regulatory reasons that we can get into if you want. Um, so 
it's also shitty data that they're getting. Like just cortex data is not like particularly amazing data, but it's still more valuable. I mean, it's still neural data and within this sort of like emerging economy of like bootstrapping uh, correlations between behavioral and neural data, it's still valuable in that sense. Yeah, there's like an interesting rhetoric I've seen sometimes pop up where they try to spin it as if these implants are affecting like intentional movements, but like you said, in reality, they're like movements that would normally be intentional, but are located in a place where it's not, if you were to stop it with an implant, it has nothing to do with your own intention to do it. It has everything to do with the motor control, right? Yes. And that has been, and that's been like really interesting to see them launder that into mind control, into, what, what was it at one point that you would be able to send a thought over um, the Neuralink and control someone else's hand <laughs> and direct <laughs> them to uh, click stuff on the screen or whatever, as, which in of itself is a nightmare for other reasons. But I, I, one also thing is really fascinating that you touched on also is like this, this effect where we keep thinking now in terms of the screen, right? And that Neuralink ends up sounding more and more like a phone, right? And the phone is just like one type of tech possibility that has dominated everything. And all it really ends up being is just like a way to get as much fucking data from you as possible so that someone somehow somewhere, as you guys were talking about with like data accumulation or data as a form of capital can figure out a way to profit from it instead of like, as Graeber talks about these poetic technologies. I mean, like last episode, we talked about how the Soviet Union had all these fucking harebrained schemes. It would have been amazing if they happened, you know, fucking uh, greening the middle, uh, the middle East or draining the Mediterranean um, uh, sea and the basin there and using that to terraform the middle East. I mean, all of that stuff, we don't have anything in our imagination now. I, maybe the closest is like attempts to talk about a green, the green Indian and what it would entail. But even that ends up being like bureaucratic along the lines he talks about, where it's more like this is a step we need to take to modestly improve life right now so that one day we can have the life that we want, if that's still possible. Yeah, and, I mean, I think, oh, go ahead. No, that's, I, I was just curious about like, what you think about like the way our imaginations have sort of just, you know, died, it feels like, or at least been captured so yeah, effectively totally. by I them. Mean, I think that my analysis and like my final analysis does differ from Graeber's in that I'm not an anarchist and he is, right? And so his analysis is that it is bureaucracy that has stifled our imaginations. And I think that that's like wrong uh, analytically and historically. Um, as he himself documents in the essay, these uh, futuristic technologies, when there was actually like this rapid uptick uh, in, in what science could do, right? That produced like the biological revolution and, and all these sort of like futuristic technologies where in the fifties people were like, oh, and it will continue to improve like this at this rate. We're the product of central planning, right? Uh, central planning that was, um, pioneered through a New Deal state that was then parlayed into a militarized, centrally planned uh, scientific effort. And I think that, um, you know, we need to really think about, uh, about what kinds of central planning uh, we want to, to revivify in, in our imagination as, as, as thinkers on the left. Um, 
you know, when it comes to the Green New Deal, I think that we're quite naive if we think that like we're going to be put in charge of it, right? It's going to be like Buttigieg put in charge of it, shown. right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but like, that is the form of systemic thinking that I think that we do need. And I think to your point about like collapsed imagination, um, I keep thinking all the time about like, you know, my dad's generation uh, grew up watching Star Wars, and that was like you know, there was a robust idea of, of science fiction being something that you read because one day the future will be like this. And what do we have now? What's the main like imaginative uh, fiction that uh, kids engage with? Harry Potter. So first of all, it's fantasy, right? There's no idea that it's real. And secondly, it's literally about exclusionary higher education yeah. based yeah. on racialization right like if you're a muggle sorry you can't come oh i wonder what that's code for right and so like there has been this collapse of like you know when people watch blade runner one they thought oh like one day these sorts of technologies will exist and i think that what was so interesting about like blade runner 2 the movie is that it has to kind of reckon with the fact that we don't believe that that future is coming anymore. And so I think that one of the things that we need to do on the left is to, is to re, is to force back open this idea of, of taking control of lovers of central planning, right? Um, I think one of the, I mean, she's not really necessarily on our side, but who makes this case very well is Marina Mazzucato, who wrote a book called The Entrepreneurial State that documents how all of the futuristic stuff that's in the iPhone, actually uh, what was funded by and comes from uh, government planning, right? It's like the GPS, voice recognition technology. And it comes from this moment in the 50s and the 60s when, uh, when there is a very strong centrally planned scientific. Yeah, and that, that's, that links directly back as well to our episode from last week where we're talking about standardization and the fact that it's like we don't have an unplanned economy. We have a highly planned economy, but the question is planned by who and for and for what reasons. And the same goes with these kinds of technologies, right? It's, it's not that we have a, a, a an unplanned economy. We The state does a lot of planning, but it funnels it through people like Elon Musk. Who, you know, Elon Musk is... A, a simply a glorified government contractor, right? He's received um, through his various ventures over five billion dollars of, of funding from the U.S. government alone um, to you know to plug into Tesla, into SpaceX, into again kind of grand engineering projects that he has. But so we end up smuggling this planning, and we end up smuggling. Um, this idea of uh, grand engineering challenges through people like Elon Musk. In turn, they are able to kind of proffer this libertarian view of, uh, you know, the anti-status, anti-government, you know, uh, part, part of uh, SpaceX and the, you know, exit Earth, as he calls it, this kind of colonizing Mars, right? Like, Wait, that's I mean, his we, name for the plan now? It's exit Earth? It's exit Earth. <laughs> but I mean, we have to understand this as well, and and to you know bring in the the Peter Till element as well. We have to understand it as like a, just a a, a a form of seasteading, right? That's what that's what the that's what um, Elon Musk is, you know, colonizing Mars. It's like you know all he does is take these these kind of ideas that are already kind of bubbling in this, uh, you know, in, in the culture, in society. Um, and then he, he just kind of puts his own, his own spin on it. 
right? So it's like, you know, Peter Till's funning, you know, uh, seasteading through, you know, the, the main leader there is, uh, I think his name is Petrie Friedman, who's like the, the grandson of Milton Friedman. Um, and, uh, and the, and the son of David Friedman, who, um, you know, teaser, I, I, I want us to do an episode in the near future. Um, David Friedman is a, uh, anarcho-capitalist, um, economist, um, mm -hmm. and he's written a lot of, of, of academic work, um, on kind of law and economics, but also he wrote this book called The Machinery of Freedom, which is meant to be like a kind of field guide or blueprint for how to organize an anarcho-capitalist society, which is all very funny to write yeah. a, a blueprint about how to organize anarcho-capitalism. Um, supposed to be voluntary, dude. <laughs> and and, and uh, I want, we will in the near future do uh, a, a two-part episode reviewing this book, which I read ages ago, um, and it, it, it's uh, it, it's it's really something. But I mean, the, this is but this is the kind of of, of way that we get, um, you know, plan the planned economy now is through uh, whether it's funneling state. Um, funding through people like these government contractors like Elon Musk um, and or through uh, the military, right? Through like DARPA. And so like, you know, we were talking bef uh, before we were recording um, about how, you know, a, a lot of this, this brain research and neurotechnology, but also just a lot of technology in general, things like GPS as well, right? All of that is coming from um, DARPA, it's coming from the Defense Department. Um, and so it's all this kind of like trickle down innovation, right? Like we create innovations in order to um, either, uh, you know, advance the war machine or to advance the wealth of private capitalists. And what we get in return is the hope that they that their piss trickles down and we get to enjoy a little bit of it, right? Yeah, I mean, so this has everything to do with the sort of uh, 68 Vietnam era critique of technology in the military industrial complex, right? So the DARPA model of uh, public-private partnerships uh, emerges directly from the state realizing that they have like that there's a widespread critique of militarized technology and the and and the centralization of the defense department right that tracks with the emergence of this kind of libertarian sensibility on the left right where we don't like any institutions now and dismantle all institutions um that then the the response to this is to say okay we're going to have public private partnerships where responsibility for uh, the creation of these technologies is going to be distributed throughout society. It's going to function uh, by having these very flexible contracts that are awarded to different academic centers. Um, and the institution of the military will in fact be totally diffused throughout uh, the American Academy, right? And the other key part of this is that it will be directly tied into the kind of emergent biotech or infotech or like information economy space such that there's really not any difference between the development of the American military throughout these distributed functions in society and the development of the American economy. And that's a deal with the devil that we agreed to, right? And you can, you can imagine and otherwise, but it would require us on the left, rethinking some of our um, some of our knee jerk reactions to uh, to ideas about central planning and, and institutions. I, I call it the e con. Oh. <laughs> in our 
episode that was, you know, talking about why surveillance capitalism is a psyop, there's um, like another theory of surveillance capitalism, which I think like just lays that out really well, you know, like the United States, you know, even reading like post-war documents, NSC 68 is a great example, understood really well that um, geopolitically, the position that it was in after World War II was not permanent. It was unnatural, you know, every single competitor was ruined or destroyed in the war. It was ascendant. It would need to create new institutions to permanently gridlock, you know, capital and power inside of its own uh, systems. And part of that internally means ramping up consumption of things, right, through an advertising revolution, uh, through an industrial arms complex that produces military goods overseas, and then like consumer facing applications here. And then part of that is like financialization when both of those, you know, spurn out, and then also technologies to make sure that people are doing what they're supposed to be doing so that we can continue to rule the world. I mean, capitalism has gotten more and more is insidious the word or more you know, as its, vict as its victory feels more and more final, you know, uh, at Let's say as, it, as its penetration into yeah, there we go. zones of everyday life becomes right. more complete. Then it, then it, then I can understand the impulse to then create like these alternative theories of surveillance capitalism where it's like, actually we're in like a, this is not capitalism anymore. You know, this is, this is some new shit, but in, in, but in reality, right, there needs to, we need to constantly pull back because if we do that, then we can then also offer, like you said, critiques that invoke central planning because we should be asking, you know, uh, what parts of our lives do we just want to not subdue to market logic? It, it's obvious that the market doesn't work for everything, even if you're some market fundamentalist. You know, and yeah. If you're not, as no one should be, uh, there should be parts of our lives that we just say, like, we don't want to be run like a market. We already decide that to an extent with like our families and our friendships. It, would, it makes sense. It should be extended elsewhere. And maybe part of that battle leads us to like reclaiming central planning. I know there have been some attempts to do so on the grounds of like, oh, look, the capitalists are doing it like Walmart, for example, Walmart and um you know, Apple and Amazon are like large centrally planned logistics networks too. And, um, you know, I remember uh, that the Morozov essay, the, the digital socialism one, which we always reference, talks a lot about how there are like cons and pros um, to that approach. But I also uh, think, I don't know, like it's just, it's like you said, like the left, I think we've fallen into so many traps that it's gotten messy at this point. Like, um, there are deliberate attempts to like not get us aware of like past historical attempts of central planning, like with cybersyn or cyber set, uh, cybernetics and in general, there are also attempts to like just tell us and indoctrinate us with the idea that humans cannot do this or whenever they do, it leads to like illiberal or uh, ill-advised political systems. And I'm curious if you think that we that the battle to get to getting people comfortable with central planning is more, it's not as pitched or as difficult as it may feel, or that there are other things that also have to be done at the same time to get people to be like, hey, maybe we should like plan to do something instead of letting like random, <laughs> random groups of people or conspiracies of capitalists to like uh, convince us to do something. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here really quick as well, just to say that I think there's a growing recognition um, that 
this this kind of market market logic and this you know the effects of capitalism, whether they're personal or political. Um, there's a recognition that this is that this is bad, that this is awful and terrible in a lot of ways. But there's also this this really weird um, and I mean I guess understandable uh, kind of uh, reticence to point to cap the fundamentals of capitalism as the problem. Instead, you see constantly, and we see it with like um, Zuboff and the the kind of uh, uh, the popularity of her critique of surveillance capitalism. We see it with something like, you know, the social um, dilemma or, you know, that, that whatever that fucking movie is called that, you know, talk about how, you know, our, the problem is that social media has these um, kind of nefarious effects on our brain, right? The, and so it kind of plays into that, that addiction logic. Again, this kind of hyper individualized um, that, it, you know, it's, it's rewiring our brain. So just playing directly into um, the kind of uh, ideology and, and, and bullshit that Musk is, is, uh, is throwing out there. Um, but you also see it in people talking about how, um, you know, that this is a, uh, a a virulent strain of capitalism. You know that somehow the the kind of capitalism that we're living in now uh, is uh, it's unprecedented. It's disruptive. It's virulent. It's it's just you know it's 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 bad on a level that completely separates it from the the total history of capitalism, um, which as well is a a wildly a materialist and a historical way to understand capitalism, right? To understand this kind of progression of this political economy that would you know. I think people are so baked in with these kind of liberal ideas that what you need is a good capitalism, right? But it's like, you know, cut to me pointing at every strain of capitalism since the 15th century and being like, that's virulent, that's virulent. Why, why are all these strains of, why is every strain of capitalism virulent, right? Like, where's the good one? I'm still looking for it. Yeah, I think completely. I mean, I think that very briefly, uh, my response would be that until we let go of our investment in the idea of the psychic life of the, of the liberal subject, we're not going to have a way out, right? Um, this is like what things like Zuboff's critique feeds on, is this idea that there is such a thing as a free individual who floats free of the environment, um, who's not influenced by the environment and can make sort of perfectly rational decisions based off of its own self-interest, right? That's the, that's the counter hypothesis and like the counter norm to the surveilled subject who's being like constantly bombarded with like behavioral stimuli that are, that are nudging or tweaking or pushing it. And what we have to recognize is that in a dialectically materialist fashion, the human organism exists in its infrastructures and its environment, and we need to reckon with that fact. And we need to take responsibility for that fact. Now, I mean, we're in this like post-Bernie moment now, right? And post-uprising moment where it's like, maybe it's not our time. Maybe, maybe the only thing that's like available to us right now in real life is to like end, you know, acephalous networks like destroy 5G. That might be the case, but we need to like be like <laughs> thinking about the fact that any politics that's built on this presupposition of the the liberal subject is is ultimately going to bite us in the ass. Yeah, it, it, I, I'm I yeah. you know constantly reminded of 
um, a quote by Marx, who I think put it really well in, in saying that people make their own history, um, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. And that's in the, the 18th Which weighs on like a nightmare on the brains of the living. Yes, exactly, exactly. And he also and so, said, "Fuck five G and destroy every cell tower you can find." Allegedly, we can't alleg- find this. <laughs> hey, we we're can't not find saying, this ragman. We're not saying that. That's what that's what Marx said. We're just we're just quoting Marx there, you know. <laughs> but uh, this is, um, I mean, that's it's such an important point as well because it plays into this kind of liberal mindset as well. Going back to again this side, this kind of uh, you know, this idea of the liberal subject that plays directly into Neuralink, that plays into all of this, also completely dominates our ideas of what resistance means as well, right? It's the, you know, it's the V for Vendetta idea of resistance, where it's a, it's a, a soul, um, heroic, and a, it, like world historically heroic agent subject who uh, their their resistance to the structures is not to remake the structures, but to eliminate the structures, right? So that we can be uh, free floating, uh, you know, that we can exist um, as a, a kind of islands unto ourselves, um, and that that that's you know uh, that that's that's the kind of model of resistance that we have is that it's it's such a um, it swings the pendulum in the structure versus agency debate all the way to agency, right? Where it's like um, the the on, the only task of the liberative, liberatory agent is to eliminate all structures. It's this kind of uh, you know what Benjamin calls the destructive character, right? Everywhere they see barriers, and everywhere they uh, they they eliminate and destroy these barriers. Um, but but. All Benjamin's point there was not that the destructive character is, you know, the exemplar of liberation as well, but rather, in many ways, a kind of a, a fool, a foolhardy um, attempt to change the world because it's one that um, doesn't seek to uh, create. It goes back to our talking about planning, right? The ex- it's the a fundamentally is- negative horizon of imagination, right? Exactly. The point is not to. Uh, uh, eliminate planning or eliminate structures. The point is to take hold of the conditions of life, to take hold of the structures, to be the one to plan, right? And, but but that's for some reason as well. It, it that is not on the cards. That's not in that's not in the cards. It's not on the table. It's whatever you know. That is not an option that is presented to us. I'm like looking at like the history of capitalism. Like for some reason, it just doesn't seem to be on the table. <laughs> for some reason every single time a group of us try to ascend or something like that and take power they uh they do (laughs) and this is what makes someone like peter till so it's insanely dangerous and frightening is that he like like the like the conservatives um, in general, like conservatives in the Republican Party in general, know how to wield power in a way that everyone else is completely uh, af- afraid 
of the of the possibility of holding power in your hands. Um, Peter Till is is dedicated to using his wealth to wield power. Elon Musk is dedicated to accumulating his wealth to wield power and influence, right? To take control of these kind of uh, grand engineering challenges and shape them uh, in, in to to meet the ends that he wants to meet. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, I think that a lot of what we see right now is a sort of endemic adolescence of uh, serious thought on the left, which is that we are afraid to wield power and we need to really, I mean, I think this is why thinking like the Green New Deal um, for all the critiques that you might have of it or that one might have of it, um, this, is, this is why this is the sort of thought that we need to be engaging in because it's serious. And it does, it takes seriously the idea that that um, you wield power and you are responsible for it. Have you all ever seen Designated Survivor? I've heard of it, right? So it's this show where like, you know, Keith Sutherland, who was like America's number one terrorist um, attacking, oh yeah, Kiefer, <laughs> Kiefer uh, Sutherland, who was America's number one terrorist would like solve uh, an attack or prevent an attack in 24 hours by other terrorists on America. And in this show, he's the secretary of education. He's the designated survivor during presidential state of the union. And then the, the uh, Capitol building gets blown the fuck up and like he's the president. Be for vendetta. <laughs> and what ends up happening is you discover this like secret cult of, uh, I don't know what their politics are, secret cult of people that are just like, let's just take over the United States. It's corrupt now. And um, we're gonna uh, kill everybody. <laughs> we're gonna kill, we're gonna kill the government and then um, and uh, implant a guy as our, uh, as our, plant and then do a coup and then we'll be good i think it's funny how like almost every single media form in one way or another that's the vision they have of like us in the left and like these people are they have like a long march through the institutions they have someone in the vice presidency and the presidency and the chief of staff in every single position and then they're just ready on the go when in reality like like you said we are not near power, at power, kind of scared of it. And I think a lot of our most ambitious stuff is more like people in power have to read something this way so that we will be in a better position to uh, change the levers or the dynamics and then eventually get to the point where we can take it from them. Yeah, I think, I think that's totally right. Yeah. So, I mean, just to, to start wrapping us up and, and, and bringing us back, um, Again, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Neuralink, and it, it's so interesting because like kind of neurotechnology and these kind of medical technologies, and you know, this, that, this, this is an area that I myself have a kind of blind spot in. I don't, you know, I don't look at these kinds of technologies in my work. I tend to focus more on the kind of information technologies and the, the kind of things that are, you know, tend to, tend to come out of Silicon Valley, that kind of aspect. But it was really just interesting um, to see how the kind of political economy of even something like Neuralink, um, and not just because it's coming from Elon Musk, but because it's plugging into a larger kind of um, way of organizing and doing technology, uh, end up linking up to the, and, and end up being driven by the same exact kind of imperatives, um, the same exact kind of 
uh, ideologies and, and views of society, of the subject, um, the same exact kind of ways of channeling money into um, developing the techno technology, the same exact kind of um, designs that these technologies are meant to um, succeed or, 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 or achieve rather, um, this, this overarching structure that is establishing the conditions for um, how technology can be built. And, and then, you know, you get people like Elon Musk who are supposedly these utopian world builders who set themselves up as um, the kind of, you know, the heroic engineer who's going to, you know, fight the establishment and actually deliver us to utopia. But this utopia is always a reactionary dream, right? It's, it's always visionary um, in its, in its, in its con you know, visionary in its sales pitch, but reactionary in its content and in its goals. And, and your essay is such a, a, a paradigmatic way of how to approach that, right? It's not to take seriously their claims of um, whether it's mind control or liberation, right? And this also gets back to what we've talked about with, um, you know, the failing of Zuboff and Cory Doctorow's critique of Zuboff as well, is that it takes seriously the power of advertisers um, of Google and Facebook um, to be able to do mind control, right? Or it takes seriously the power of Cambridge Analytica, which is just a fucking political marketing firm like every other political marketing firm um, right. to sway the, rev you know, to sway the election uh, for the Russians or whatever, right? It, the, the mistake here is taking seriously um, what they say they can do rather than situating what they say they can do within a historical and materialist um, analysis. And then at the same time, not buying into um, their, their, their own uh, ideas of what resistance or what liberation means. And, and instead, uh, creating a kind of collective uh, response to what is ultimately um, a collective problem. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that my critique ultimately is, you know, Elon Musk sort of coyly said um, during the launch that, yeah, I guess this does kind of sound like a Black Mirror episode. And it's like, you fucking wish, <laughs> you know? <laughs> 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 but yeah, I mean, I think that that in reality, it's not to say that it's not bad. I would like to, you know, be very clear about this. Yes, it is bad, um, but it's bad for reasons that are much more quotidian and much less um, cinematic than they would like for you to believe, right? So, like, for instance, when we think about the way that the military is funding all of these different forms of electroceuticals and uh, neural technologies. Right. One way of sort of buying the hype is to say, well, they're building robot soldiers who are going to be like perfectly controlled and like terminator of the mind. And like, well, maybe not so much, but it's going to look a lot like what uh, the privatization of the state has looked like for since the 70s. Right. Where you take publicly funded science and then give the patents um, through different like forms of like uh, paperwork to um, private capital or and, and the state is once again used as a funnel. Um, for, for, for private capitalist accumulation, right? That's a, that's a story that we know very well and, and that's what we need to watch out for. Yeah, I, I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything that you want to plug or? or... 
Um, I hear that there's a great Patreon at uh, <laughs> Chill, so. <laughs> Thank uh, you guys so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Of course, thanks for coming on. Of course, yes. Yeah, so uh, we'll follow Danielle on Twitter and and read her essay, and we'll put all that in the episode description. Um, and yes, sign up, subscribe for uh, Patreon.com/slash This Machine Kills, uh, and we'll have our first Patreon episode coming out later this week. So um, until then, see ya.